Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Massey Hall and Roy Thompson Hall proudly present three huge events in Toronto over the next two months. An intimate evening with Jonathan Goldstein takes place at the Winter Garden Theatre on Tuesday, March 29th at 8 p.m. April Fool's, an evening of comedy at Massey Hall, hosted by Gilbert Gottfried, with headliner Nikki Payne, takes place at Massey Hall on Friday, April 1st at 8 p.m. And, of course, Creative Control with Vish Khanna. Hey, that's me. That's the show. We're doing a live taping with the Minotaurs and an interview with uh, that band's Nathan Lore as well as a conversation with CBC Radio's Pia Chattopadhyay. That's happening at the Drake Underground on Saturday, April 9th at 8 p.m. For more details about physical accessibility and to purchase tickets to any of these events, please visit RoyThompson.com or MasseyHall.com. This episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero, the finest pizzeria in all of Guelph, Ontario. They've got delicious gourmet pizzas or choose from an array of fresh ingredients and make whatever you like. Calzones, wings, panzerotti, salads, breadsticks, garlic bread. Pizza Trocadero has it all. You can find them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph or visit them online at trocaderoguelph.ca. That's T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. Call them at 519-829-2444 for pickup or delivery. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. The next edition of Long Winter takes place at the Great Hall in Toronto on both Friday, March 18th and Saturday, March 19th. On March 18th, see live music by Marvelous Mark, Triple Gangers, Bridget Bardon'ts, Infinite Poolside, Baby Cages, Zoo Owl, Prince Innocence, Whoop Zoo, Isaac Valentine, The Queer Songbook Orchestra, Rachel Cardiello, Avant Cool, La Timba, Molo, Sitaracon by The Holy Gasp, and Ken Murphy. Also on March 18th in the Black Box at 9 p.m., a live taping of a Creative Control with Vish Khanna episode, featuring a panel discussion about the Toronto Blue Jays with Stacey May Fowles, Drew Fairservice, Desmond Cole, and Josh Sucker of Fucked Up. On March 19th, see live music by Cousins, Joyful Talk, Juge, Triad, JFM, Mystic Triangle, Shy Wisdom, Witch Prophet, Long Branch, Dorothea Paz, Top Forte, Spoken Symphonies, 
DJ Adam T, and Thin Edge Collective Workers Union by Louis Andresen, plus CCMC, Phrase Velocity, and CRL, as curated by the Music Gallery. Also on March 19th, another episode of the Long Winter Talk Show, Long Night with Vish Khanna, with special guests Jay Ferguson and Patrick Pentland of Sloan, a cooking demo with Zane Kaplansky, filmmaker Caitlin Durlach, and music by So Long Set Plus, art, performance, dance, and readings, the Long Winter Arcade, and the Toronto International Film Festival's presentation of the next New Wave Festival. This edition of Long Winter is an all-ages event that takes place on Friday, March 18th, and Saturday, March 19th, both at 7 p.m., and each evening costs $10 admission. The Great Hall is not an accessible venue yet and is located at 1087 Queen Street West. For more information about advanced tickets and other things, please visit torontolongwinter.com. Welcome back to Long Night, folks. You're a hot crowd. Let me say that right away. You're a hot hot crowd creative control with Vish Josh Gondelman is a Peabody winning and Emmy nominated comedy writer author and stand up comedian who currently lives in New York City where he works as a writer on HBO's Last Week Tonight with John Oliver raised in Boston Gondelman has also written for Billy on the Street and is the co-author of the Shorty Award-winning Modern Seinfeld Twitter account. Oh, and his own Twitter feed, at Josh Gondelman, was named the best account of 2015 by Paste Magazine. In summary, Josh Gondelman is very good at everything. This spring, he'll be appearing on Conan and Night Train with Wyatt Cenac to spread the word about Physical Whisper, his breathtakingly hilarious sophomore comedy album, which is out via Rooftop Comedy on March 18th, here to discuss some of the things I just said is Josh Gondelman. Uh, hi, Josh. How are you? Hello. I'm doing great, thank you. Uh, that, what a lovely intro. The only thing I take any issue is with is good at everything. <laughs> I think that is uh, a very generous compliment that I don't think I can sit idly by and accept. <laughs> well, as I was chronicling your various achievements, it occurred to me that uh, they were just—they seem to be ramping up. That you've—you've you've done very well for yourself, sir. Thank you. I do feel like things have gone well. And I'm very delighted by that. I have a, the turn my life has taken towards uh, successes here and there. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's well-deserved. You're very funny. And I, I really do appreciate the time uh, that you, we have here to talk about things. Where, where are you right now, Josh? I am in my apartment in Brooklyn and just sitting on the couch with my dog, which is great. I'm, I'm off from work Mondays and Tuesdays. And I try to, do, uh, to log some serious hours like hanging out with the pup and relaxing uh, between like other things. So I've uh, I've been wearing sweatpants all day. I showered for this interview, even though I'm alone with a dog who certainly doesn't <laughs> smell better than I do. <laughs> I could tell you showered actually. It's coming through the line. So oh, good, 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 excellent. Thank you, thank you. Now, Josh, I want to begin because you're in Brooklyn, because you're in New York State, and you're in the United States of America. I want to ask you very simply. How is America doing right now? Oh, boy. Well, there are some people who would say it needs to be made great again. And <laughs> those people scare the other people. So it's uh, it's tense. It's very tense. You guys got like a, a shiny new just out the box prime minister last year. And I feel like uh, we 
kind of um, well, we we might not <laughs> in November. So that's a very uh, it's like a, a low a low grade anxiety that certainly uh, it permeates. Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you may not have any perspective on this, I, I assume, living where you live, but I feel like all of us have at least a low-grade anxiety about what's going on. You know, when I check out on the BBC News app on my phone, it's the lead story. It's all, almost always the lead story is what's going on in your current presidential election campaigns. I mean, that's not unusual given the the place America holds in the world, but this... And again, I'm I'm not sure if we can even laugh at it anymore, right? I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Like, do you have a take on that? It is intense, and I think I think there are certainly things that can be made fun of. But I think in the the general sense, it is not a funny situation because it is so sincerely uh, impactful for the future. So I think kind of the the time of like. Oh man, look at these buffoons is over because you're like, oh wait, uh, not everyone thinks they're buffoons, and this is that's really scary. <laughs> well, I mean, I think some might assume that with all the personalities involved and how bizarre the circumstances have been, it's all very low hanging fruit for comedy and satire. Are you saying that it's not necessarily? Is this actually a challenging time to be someone who does what you do? Oh gosh, um, I guess there's an abundance of intense, unprecedented wildness surrounding this election. But I don't know if it's always easy to mock because it has become, it has reached the point of what used to be parody and satire in sincerity. Right. And and I mean, you also, you are living this binary life where you are, you are a comedian, but you're a citizen. Yes. Who, <laughs> who feels things differently probably than the comedian side of you. I mean, and I don't know how you reconcile the two. I think that comes a little easier because my general mode of expression is probably through comedy or at least if not comedy jokes and mocking, even if it doesn't take the form of like a comedy bit or writing for television, my general way of coping with stress is to uh, try to make light of it in some way. So I don't, find myself in deep conflict regarding comedian Josh versus uh, my regular, my citizen self. Uh, but that's only because I'm unable to uh, communicate with like sincere emotion <laughs> at this point. <laughs> now you work on a show whose host last year, John Oliver last year, he made, I thought, some very sensible comments about his desire to avoid speaking about the election until at least the election year which I think that's part of it. It's just such a long slog to get to November. Um, and he also, at the time, I think he had bristled about covering Donald Trump at all. He didn't find him interesting. And, I mean, aside from this in, this very sharp made Make Donald Trump Again segment, you, your show has mostly avoided him and the election on some level. Is there now a declarative direction among the staff about how the show is going to deal with or not deal with a thing that is dominating the news cycle? Gosh, I, I guess, I mean, my personal desire is to not be redundant covering things that have been covered from the same angles they've already been covered. Right. 
And uh, I think I think John has said that we're trying to take kind of a broader look at the process of elections and democracy. Uh, but like, other than that, you know, there's there's some stuff in the works that I can't really speak to just because it's not my place within the show. But I I uh, I don't think the the election will be ignored this year to the level that we willfully tried to uh, not discuss or look at it last year. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it is so it's kind of unavoidable now. It feels yeah. It feels more present and uh, and vital. You're someone, I think, who who you're, you're. I would say you're now part of pop culture. You've studied pop culture. Uh, last week tonight is part of a cohort of shows that now includes many comedic news breakdown programs. Uh, there's almost too many to mention. I started to make a list, but I can't keep track anymore. And a lot of them, I think, are are uh, feature people who used to work on the Daily Show, which I think, particularly the John Stewart version, some would argue, kind of kickstarted all of this stuff. Why do you suppose there's such a demand for this kind of news consumption in late night TV? Because that's I, I find that very interesting. Uh, do you have a Do you have a sense of that? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I guess it's just because the maybe because the news is increasingly preposterous on its own, and comedy helps to uh, cope and react to that without uh, screaming constantly. But there, I mean, there are so many great. Uh, shows that are on now and for and different perspectives I think as well like I think uh, every show gives a different angle on what uh, what is happening in the world and that's really lovely I think it's nice to have all, all sorts of different voices to listen to do you ever feel like it's there's too many of these kinds of shows now oh I, I don't think so I mean I don't know what that point would be I, you know like I think too many of something it's of some kind of entertainment is either so many that it's harmful which i can't see being the case or like so many that uh that the market will kind of crashes under the weight mm -hmm. so I, I think it's i mean if if there keep if it continues to be an increasing number but that people continue to want that then i think it's okay uh, I, I mean, I feel, but I guess that's a little hypocritical because sometimes I'm like, why is every movie a superhero movie now? There are too many. I don't care about this many superheroes. <laughs> I care about none. <laughs> but that's, again, that's just a personal preference. Yeah, I mean, it would probably, the equivalent would be for me to say there are too many news shows, um, like actual news shows. But I did, actually, now that I just said that, I think that was sort of part of the premise of Jon Stewart's Daily Show, wasn't it? There's just too much news. There's not, there's too much stuff purporting to be news. Yeah, there is a lot. There's, there's so much of that. And I think that that was a very, um, a, a very wonderful and necessary thing that the Daily Show brought up in a really great way of like, a lot of this that says it's news, I don't know if it's news. <laughs> so I think it's, uh, yeah, I think that there's, there's, we're just kind of constantly absorbing information that that tells us that it's news. Yeah. And uh, so that maybe like a, a funny response to that is good to have. Right. Now, it has it has been for you. It's been five years since your, your first stand-up record, Everything's the Best, came out. And I'm curious, when, when did you actually begin work on the material that uh, makes up Physical Whisper, your new record? I think it probably started in its germinating phases like 
before the previous one came out, like in the period after I'd recorded it, but before it was available in the world. So I recorded in June 2011, and then it came out in November 2011. And there were pro- there are probably a couple little things that uh, that are on the new record that were developed in that period of time. So it's been a while. It's been it was about four years, maybe a little more than four years worth of accumulating material and refining and throwing stuff out that I had, you know, worked for a little while, but not the way I wanted or didn't work ever, even though I really wanted it to. And so it, it, it's a while. And, um, I'm, I'm always very jealous and admiring in a jealous in an admiring way of my friends who kind of turn over a new hour, a new 45 minutes or a new 30 minutes every year, year and a half. But, uh, I'm a little pokier. So I think, so that's that's the long answer to a very short and straightforward question. <laughs> no, no, that's fair. I appreciate the insight. And actually, you did say something interesting there about how some things didn't work out even though you wanted them to. I'm just curious what that what your gauge is for that. Is that trying to work that stuff out in a room or is that your own personal realization that something is just like, oh, I don't think that's a thing. Like, how how do you figure that out? Oh, interesting. I mean, I think the the best way to edit stand up is to bring it to an audience and see if they're understanding what you're trying to articulate. That's kind of the only way to know if it's a thing. However, uh, you don't get specific feedback from an audience in terms of why they don't laugh, right? Like if they don't laugh, that's usually end of story. There's nobody in the audience going, we find that unrelatable, just like yelling that <laughs> out. So occasionally if there's something I really believe in but doesn't work I'll take it to a comedian friend and see if he or she can help me joke doctor it a little bit and uh and pinpoint what exactly the malady is whether I'm not whether it's just an insight that's not funny or it's just or it's something that people don't understand or just people something that people straight up disagree with and so I think there are a lot of reasons why something doesn't work and the ultimate verdict of that is whether people laugh at it. Right. That's interesting because I think that you, you, you're putting a lot of the burden on yourself. And I guess on some level, you're you're seeking assistance from other professional comedians, which I think is and you're, you're working with a crowd. But one of the great aspects of stand up or one of the things you hear sometimes is great crowd tonight. Ugh tough crowd tonight mm-hmm. so <laughs> i mean you you probably have to take those things into consideration too when you're working out uh new material i assume like maybe the crowd isn't right even yeah definitely it is uh very much bringing a new bit in front of a crowd that uh is a little tougher is kind of a uh, an ego obliterating experience to be like oh i'm so excited about this like it's almost as if a parent who's honest about a child's artwork is like what a new bit in a tough crowd is, right? Like you're, you have this thing that you're so enthusiastic to share and they go, Hey, that doesn't look anything like a treehouse. Like you said that was a treehouse, but man, that just, that looks like a brush fire is what that is. It's a, it's a disaster. <laughs> and you go, Oh, well, I guess I'll never draw a treehouse again. So it's a lot of, a, a lot of, Stand up is kind of learning to put that aside, and if you really believe in something, uh, spiting those audiences <laughs> that don't like you by trying it again, even though they've given you the 
explicit feedback that this is not funny and we were not entertained. Right. I, I see how that's ego obliterating. That that answer also taught me a lot about how I should be interacting with my child. <laughs> my, my children. My children, really. I feel like I've been a bit harsh on some of their art now. Um <laughs> So thank you for that as well. Now, You're since, welcome. Anytime your... I can, anytime I can give uh, parenting advice coming from my years of experience of not being a parent, <laughs> I'm happy to do it. <laughs> now, since this was your second album, did you have a particular vision for Physical Whisper that you know something where you, that you thought was lacking uh, in your first record, or something you wanted to even improve upon? I don't necessarily think of it as a sequel, but I do remember that when I was leaving Boston in 2011, summer of 2011, right after I'd recorded, the year leading up to that, I knew I was going to move to New York and I knew I was going to leave my day job, which was teaching preschool. So I do have some insights in how to, uh, how to complement a child's artwork in a heartfelt but completely uh, <laughs> factually incorrect manner. So I, so I was leaving my preschool job and I had on my first album a lot of jokes about teaching. And I consciously, my last year in Boston, tried to wean myself off of those jokes and writing more jokes like them because I didn't want to take that support system away from myself when I moved and then realize I didn't know how to write any jokes that weren't just like, here's a very charming thing a child said, and here's why it's not exactly correct. <laughs> it's like, uh, because I didn't want that to be, I didn't want to have to lean back on the, on the old stuff, even though that didn't reflect my life. So I guess the, the choice was to try to make it reflective of my life as I was living over the period that I was writing and working on this material. Right. Okay. Now I'm actually, I'm, it's interesting you bring up the, the preschool thing and, and maybe wanting to move on from it because I'm curious how conscious you are about your style as a comedian. From, from my perspective, you have this very unique way of telling personal stories there that are subtly informed by observational jokes there's politics within them there's you seem to delve into social norms and pop culture as well but it, as i say i you know i i follow comedy i think you have a, a pretty unique way of letting a joke unfold uh, letting a story unfold do you have a sense of where your approach to stand up comes from oh gosh what a first of all thank you that's a very lovely compliment um i guess oh you're welcome i it's a lot about just enjoy, I, I enjoy stand-up very much and trying to, trying to say things that I mean is a big part of it. And, but stylistically, I think I come, I try to come at it from a lot of different like arm angles. Like you would say with a pitcher, I don't really, like a baseball pitcher. I don't really know what the comedy equivalent of that is, but like, I think... I don't know that I do any one thing well enough to just rely on that. Like I don't, I'm not the kind of performer who goes, okay, I'm doing an hour. I'm going to tell eight, eight minute stories and they're all going to have an arc and they're all going to really blow the roof off the place throughout. And when I get to the end, like, I just don't think I'm interesting enough to pull that off, but I'm also not the kind of comedian that is, uh, that's like, I write, one-liners and I can just deliver a hundred one-liners in 45 minutes and people are going to sit with bated breath for the incredible twist in each one. 
So it's kind of a hybridization of trying to say what I mean and finding the length of joke or the style that uh, that serves that bit. I do remember Gary Gullman, who's a favorite comedian of mine and, and wonderful. Mm-hmm. I was opening for him a few years ago, and he was like, "You do the voices you do are fun. You should do some. You should keep doing those." And that was kind of the one thing that I remember getting specific stylistic feedback and going. Oh, okay. Yeah, I could do that. And so there are a few bits on this album that are kind of voice and character centric. Uh, and some of that comes out of, I think, I think some of that comes out of just like what felt right for the joke, but a part of it came out of like, oh yeah, I can consciously remember that's a thing I can add to a joke. I can make this character, I can give this character a Boston accent because it will make the joke funnier and because it will disguise who it's really about, who is a person without a Boston accent. (laughs) So you're easing, I mean, it sounds to me that you started writing and performing stand-up, but then the aspect of performance is being enhanced as you developed. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think I'm getting to be, uh, I'm getting to think about and try to work on being a performer. Cause I remember when I first started, it was just jokes. I would write jokes and uh, I would just, I get, oh, it's like, I guess I have to bring my physical body on stage to tell them to people. And, and I liked the experience of performing, but I also didn't think about it in the same way. Like I like the feeling of wearing a suit, right? Like I'm like, Oh, I look kind of nice, but I never think of like, I should dress better more. <laughs> it's, just, it's like almost an accident when I'm like at a wedding, like, oh, this feels pretty official. And then when I take <laughs> off the suit, I'm just like, time for jeans forever. <laughs> so it took me a, it took me a very long time to be like, oh, this is something I should be mindful of. And right. uh, there's something I should be mindful of as well as uh, just enjoying when it happens by accident. Right. No, that's great. I mean, you, I, I'm curious if you are someone who has studied. You mentioned you love comedy, and you mentioned that Gary Goldman gave you some advice. So mm-hmm. you're obviously, and you know, as a comedian, you're immersed in the scene of, you know, observing others at a comedy club. But are you like a? There's a big thing now about some comedians have studied comedy. You know, they took records home and listened to them endlessly, and they 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 followed the form and all the you know, machinations that go on in comedy clubs. Were you that guy? Were you someone who knew all that stuff on a, like a nerd level? No, not before I started. I, I don't think I'd ever, I'd seen live comedy. Like when I had experience, uh, when I had the chance to see live comedy on campus or, or comedy on TV, like I love the Comedy Central half hours, but I don't think I knew that much about it structurally before I started doing it. Like I might not have even, Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. been to an actual comedy club like I'd seen shows at when I was in, when I was in college uh, my freshman year I'd you know gone to stuff on campus and uh, but I'd never been like I'm gonna go to this comedy club and talk to the people and see how it works or like read a really behind I'd read a couple behind the scenes books of just people like I read a biography of Groucho Marx and but that didn't have a lot of bearing on like the comedy I started doing in terms of like oh you know what I mean it wasn't like well I guess I'll be in I guess I'll make silent films now. It was just like an interesting <laughs> thing I was interested in as more of a fan than someone who was like, oh, I want to know the nuts and bolts. And now I'm very fascinated with that. And but I think part of that is because it's germane to my life. But I, again, I was never I I was not the kind of comedy fan that I think more commonly exists now that than when I started 10, 12 years ago, uh, where like I know what the cool venues are all over the country and I know what festivals are big and like, mm -hmm. uh, and where to travel to see people. So, uh, and I definitely mostly knew fa famous or medium famous comedians. Right. Right. Um, I, I didn't know like who the best guy in town was or the best woman. Right. But, and so things like, uh, I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about, which is interesting given my love of the show Seinfeld, is modern Seinfeld. Um, because I don't know if it's coming. Is that coming from a place of fascination with a show like that? Definitely. Uh, or it, it, clearly you, you are immersed in the, in, the, in the landscape of that show in order to make the, the jokes that you have been making. <laughs> but is that a place of love or kind of cynicism? It's definitely a place of love. I think one wonderful thing about Seinfeld... Uh, is that they took a thing, they would take a thing that's like, maybe exists in the world, but and then they would give it a name, and then people would go, oh, yeah, close talker. I know what that is. That That's something I've experienced. Or they would have a character in a unique situation. The two things that, that Seinfeld did that are my favorites were they would name a thing that existed that previously didn't have a name or give a word to something, right? Yada, 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 a Seinfeld thing. What mm -hmm. an amazing lexicon, what an amazing lexical item to create. Just the ultimate tossed off thought opinion. You know what I mean? Like, that's so great. To, Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's brilliant. And then the other thing was they created these characters that would have really distinctive reactions to any situation. And that's also admirable and not as easy to do as the show makes it look. I mean, George Costanza is based on Larry David, but also, like, not everybody who has Larry David-level uh, feelings about things and reactions to things knows to make a brilliant television character about them or knows how to do it. You know what I mean? There are a lot of people right, that think right. I would be a really fascinating television character, but that what that probably means is they just yell at cab drivers a lot. You know what I mean? Or like <laughs> they uh, don't know how to make friends. So I, 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 it's from a place of admiration and, and love for the, for the show and what it's accomplished 
and its sense of humor. And it clearly has informed your sensibility in some way. Definitely. Yeah, I think there's... Just, just, just the way they think about things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how to filter things and how to, uh, like, have an interesting response to something and how to break something down, how to, like, recognize something that exists and go, that, that do- that's not something people talk about, but it's something that needs to be or bears discussion. There's a, a Jerry right. Seinfeld stand-up joke that I love so much about uh, commercials for... It's, like, old. It's from his first... Uh, from his Showtime special? I'm telling you for the last time. Yeah. Where he talks HBO. about prescription drug... Or drug commercials. Over-the-counter drug commercials. And he talks about how always there's the picture of person with head turned and then, like, diagram of medicine going through mouth into stomach. <laughs> right. And he goes... That's how they see us. We're just a tube to get the drugs into the <laughs> inside of the body. And it's just like, man, what a, a thing that when I described that to you, I did a super ineloquent job of describing the visual uh, cue. Yeah. But like you knew what sure, it was yeah. because it's something that you <laughs> see all the time. And then he had the observation on it that's just like, oh, yeah, this is the thing that we should all think. But it took someone to point it out. And that's pretty amazing to me. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's that's a that seems to be one great superpower of comedians, particularly observational comedians. It's it is pretty remarkable. Now, you broke a Seinfeld joke down essentially. I wanted to see if you might consider breaking down one of your own. Yeah, uh, definitely. From the new record, there's there's many to choose from and I I had I was trying to figure out which to ask you about. The one that sticks out for me because it's quite intricate on some level is the entire spectrum of human potential. Can you break this joke <laughs> I'm such down? A jerk. Why would I call it that? It's yeah, <laughs> sure. So it's the story is it's a story about meeting a homeless person asleep on the subway, which is like I think in New York kind of the it's like a fairly entry level premise. So I'm a little in in a way of wanting to talk about unique things, I'm like a little embarrassed that I tell a long story about that because so many people have done really funny bits about that. But it's also, so it's meeting a homeless person and him talk, talking to me and my girlfriend at the time about how he used to uh, be, how he used to be a professor of European studies and, and that how alcoholism had caused him to lose his home and he now was, was sleeping on the train. Uh, but what, what started the discussion was I mentioned Otto von Bismarck when I got on the train, the German chancellor. And he told me, he, he woke up from sleep and told me that Otto von Bismarck was not the chancellor of, the Germany, of Germany. He was the king. He unified the Germanic peoples and then scattered the people of Africa. That's what he told me. And I was mm-hmm. just blown away. And then we transferred trains and we met this little kid who was super cute. He was wearing a hat that was Bert from Sesame Street, the face of Bert. And was just like really inquisitive and sweet. And he got off at the same subway stop as I did. And I was just like so blown away by his uh, like enthusiasm, enthusiasm for life. And I kind of saw this like world weary person who had been beaten down by systems and not offered a safety net. And then this little kid who was living kind of like his brain was just like growing by the second like you could see him learning and processing new information and i was really struck by that all happening and in one night and then like like 
ultimate kicker to the story. I love how I'm just telling, what I'm doing is just telling the bit with the jokes taken out. So I just sound like a really <laughs> earnest observer of human, like I just sound like humans of New York, but in words. <laughs> No, so, but I one of one of I noticed that you were you were doing this and there's no jokes, but I'm curious if I was gonna at some point just be like, so this is all true, right? This is an actual thing that happened. Yes, it is a thing that happened. So th- then the last, so I guess the last part of it, I I feel like this is a hard joke to break down because it's a long story with little things interspersed. But the yeah. the end of it is. I thought I was the my takeaway was like I need to be better. I need to be more informed. I need to learn about the world that I live in. And I looked up Otto von Bismarck and he was the chancellor and that guy didn't know what he was talking about. And then I was mad at the homeless guy, which is like a totally inappropriate way to feel. It was like, uh, and that's the end of the joke is that my takeaway was, uh, don't trust people, which is like exactly the opposite of where I'd been before I looked it up. So it's like kind of a, um, I, it turns a couple different ways and hopefully I'm not a monster, but that's like the, that's the story of it. So, and I, I guess I wanted to get that across to people listening or reading because I think there are so many moving parts to the joke that it, it's hard to dive in unless you had specific questions about little parts. And I just like rambled on and on for several minutes. No, no, no. It's, it's fine. I'm curious about how soon after you experienced this situation, do you begin to recognize that it's fodder for a funny story. That happened kind of right away. And I think it, uh, the joke accordioned outwards. So what happened was I had that experience and I thought, oh, I like it, I jumped maybe too quickly from, oh, what an interesting, fascinating person who has had, uh, uh, whose life has taken a very difficult turn to, ah, this guy's a lying son of a gun or just misinformed or, you know, whatever it is. And, and that was kind of the original kernel of the bit, but the bit ends up being, it's like six, eight minutes, I guess. And I think that's because as I told it, there was more to the story and I wanted to, there was more, there was more to make fun of about myself and about the situation. And there was also like, I didn't want to dehumanize this person for like, cause that wasn't the joke. The joke to me was I was blown away by this circumstance and then immediately pivoted and did a 180 to like mistrust and cynicism. And so I needed to like establish the wonderment that I felt at first or because otherwise it was just like, Hey, a person down on his luck said something and it wasn't true. Isn't this guy a dick? And so, and that's not the story. So it kind of ballooned outwards from the beginning and end. And I needed to create a little distance and like, I, you know, there were more places to add jokes and observations and, uh, and that's kind of how it happened. So it happened very quickly, but it was too cynical when I started thinking about it and, and telling it on stage. And so it got kind of progressively nicer and progressively more, um, genuine rather than like this dummy and progressively i think maybe more introspective but you so one of the things i'm interested in is that as the mind of a comedian i mean there probably is a perception and i don't know if it's right or wrong that particularly if someone who tells observational based stories is that your mind is never really off 
is this a, is this the type of thing that happens to you or has happened? This kind of circumstance. I mean, this is a very unique circumstance. Have you had situations occur where you didn't even recognize material until well after the fact? Do you know what I mean? Definitely. Like your brain was like, wait a second, that would, what what like you're so stunned initially that it takes maybe a week to be like, wait a minute. The, Does that happen? Yeah, the longest time it ever. Well, there's a, a bit of my first album about. Um, a classroom full of four-year-old girls who wanted to marry one specific boy in the class. And he said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to marry this other boy. And that was something that <laughs> it took me, it, someone else had to point it out. Like I, I was telling that story to some friends at a party and my girlfriend at the time was like, you have to tell that on stage. That's a very funny story. And I was like, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. And then the example on this album is the story about my girlfriend who uh, did a very funny thing. She she, it's like kind of a a bittersweet story, but that ends really happy uh, about my girlfriend doing a very funny, charming thing that was like kind of a joke on me, and I remember thinking that was a great thing and like holding it in my head and telling it to friends and friends being really charmed by my girlfriend Maris's like perspective and, and actions. But then I never thought to take it on stage until I told it on a podcast and I was talking on the podcast about it. And then I ended up telling it kind of extemporaneously at a show at UCB where you were supposed to not prepare material and just talk about uh, what they, like you got a word prompt like you would for an improv set. Right, uh, right. And so I got a word prompt that reminded me of that story that I was just telling and I told it on stage and I was like, oh, this is a bit. So I don't always have a great, I have kind of the dual thing of, I don't always recognize when something's a bit, and also I can't turn off my brain. So it's kind of the worst of both worlds. <laughs> so there might be things floating in your brain that you just haven't brought down, basically. Uh, things that have yeah. occurred, you know? Yeah. Definitely. It's all kind of floating like um, like detritus from a, a sunken ship. <laughs> Well, you you work on a show that has a pretty limited season, right? You don't do what do you do? Twelve episodes a year? No, we do. Last year we did thirty-five. This year we're doing thirty. Oh, I'm sorry. It's but that's that's comparably less than uh, other talk shows. Definitely fewer shows, yeah, because we're weekly. So right. we we work. I think we are in the office a similar amount of weeks to other shows, but but there are right. You're weekly. That's yes. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so there right. are that, few, that, that that explains that fewer shows over the year, but more, but roughly the same amount of time working on them. Right, right. Sorry, I, 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 I think I remember Stephen Colbert needling John Oliver about. His <laughs> yeah, they were. I think when he went on last year, when he went on the new uh, late night with Stephen Colbert, he teased him about it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I think I, I in my head, I, I mangled that a little bit. My point was. You've got this record coming out. Um, what's next for you? Like, do you have tour dates planned? What are you going to be doing with yourself? I have some. To- I have a few tour dates. Mostly, I'm in the office, and I really love my job. It's like a. De- it's a delightful place to work. I work with really talented and wonderful people, and uh, but I also love to do stand up. So it's kind of. It's. I try to fit the stand mold the stand up around the schedule as much as I can to the point of kind of tearing my personal life apart, uh, which I'm trying to do less of. That That's what I'm trying to cut back on, is tearing my personal life apart. So I'm, 
I'm hoping to, um, hoping to kind of use the kind of exciting things that are happening over the next month or so from doing Conan to the night train episode that I taped in December airing and trying to use that to do stand up at even more venues and more fun places when I have the time and to, but not so much that I'm like showing up bedraggled and uh, disheveled to my day job. Um, Because I, you know, I might, it's a priority for me, obviously to come in every day and do a good job there. And then maybe to find another project to work on when I, the album was kind of born out of having my, the book that I co-wrote with my friend Joe Berkowitz come out and then feeling like, well, well now what do I do on the weekend? And like, now how do I spend my leisure time? So it was a, um, it was definitely, uh, it definitely, like I anticipate having this feeling again is what I was going to say. I definitely am worried about immediately going, oh, well now this album's out and I don't, I can't really talk about it anymore because everyone's sick of me talking about it. And I can't right. really, you know, I'm writing stand up, but that's, that's kind of an ongoing process. So maybe, I don't know, like maybe I'll try to write another book or that's kind of what I'm able to do. The, like a, a book is like a schedule I can keep uh, while still showing up at work and doing stand up because it's, it can be worked on whenever, which I like. Yeah. Sorry, I'm rambling, okay, and so I apologize. No, you're not. It's fine. No, I, I mean, it's an open-ended question, and I think maybe I suddenly became your guidance counselor, and you had to be <laughs> like, what am I doing with my life? Yeah, but you brought so, out a lot of existentialism in me. <laughs> I, I think I was going to apologize. I, frankly, it's probably healthy. No, it is certainly healthy, and I appreciate it. Okay, good, good. Now, once again, I want people who are listening to know that Josh Gondelman's new stand-up record is called Physical Whisper, and it's out everywhere March 18th via Rooftop Comedy, and you can learn more about it at rooftopcomedy.com or joshgondelman.com. And please follow his very funny, award-winning <laughs> Twitter feed, at Josh Gondelman. Uh, it's fantastic. I love following you on the Twitter, Josh. Oh, thank uh, you. Thank you for your funny, funny, funny tweets. Now, is there a track from the new record... That we can that you can select for us to go out on right now. Oh gosh, do we? What are our language restrictions? That's like kind of a sincere question. It it, it doesn't matter at okay. all. Okay, you can. Uh, I mean, having now that you've said that, people know what they're in for, so maybe they can <laughs> tune out if they uh, don't want to hear what you have to say. But no, it doesn't matter. Go for it. When anything you like, any length, it's fine by me. Okay, great. I think the one that I uh, one that I it's available as a pre. Uh, is like a, a sample track on the on rooftop b- on rooftop's website but i also think it's kind of like a fun description of or like a fun encapsulation of some of the stuff we were talking about is the joke surprise it's track 10 um which will be i guess track is the wrong word or maybe it isn't it's coming out on cassette and digitally so it's not tracks like a cd it's just di- <laughs> kind of separated out for the digital listener uh what would you call it? It's like a cut? What would I guess, you call yeah, it? let's call it a uh, cut. A cut sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Hot cut. Surprise. <laughs> so the so the cut is the cut is surprise. Uh, do you want to contextualize it in any way? What can you tell us about surprise? It is, uh, it's very silly and fun to tell. And it's, uh, I think it's a pretty sincere 
sentiment. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And it's not something that we think about enough, I think. Thank so you. That's, let's hear it. This is uh, Josh Gondelman with Surprise. Josh, this was a, genuinely a pleasure. I thank you for your time, and, and I do wish you the best of luck with everything. Thank you so much. I appreciate your taking the time. It was uh, delightful. But I'm, I'm an optimist. I think the world is a decent place, and it's getting better. I think the only people who are more optimistic than I am, who see the world in rosier tones, are the folks who love surprises. Because if you love surprises, your life has been terrific. <laughs> because most surprises are terrible. <laughs> Car accidents, tornadoes, unplanned pregnancies. Those are all technically surprises. So for you to still love the surprise as like a genre of thing... Less of that has ever happened to you. More people have just thrown you birthday parties you weren't expecting. <laughs> if you asked everyone on Earth what they thought about surprises, you'd get half a dozen people who'd be like, I love surprises, hooray! You'd be like, cool it, Brittany, with an eye at the end. <laughs> and you'd get half a billion people who'd go, why do I hate surprise? I tell you. As young men was returning home to village, from hillside where we leave our babies till they grow big and strong. <laughs> As I pass through village gate, four men in masks jump out of bushes and attack me with clubs. Surprise! <laughs> I pull out the blade I carry for just such occasion and fight my attackers back. One, two, three, four, the men fall to the earth. As fourth assailant crumples to the ground, he begs me to pull mask away from his face. And as I do, I see is face of my own brother. And I think to myself, oh goody, one day, double surprise. <laughs> so as you can all imagine, last week, on my birthday, when everyone jumped from behind the couch in the drapes yelling, surprise, I began to sob uncontrollably. And I murdered all of the party guests. <laughs> Only survivor was woman hiding in cake. Now we are married, so some surprise not bad, I guess, is what I tell you. <laughs> See, I turned it, because I'm an optimist, remember, from before. <laughs> but I did cheat. I used the saddest possible accent. I used that Eastern European one that can make a hangnail sound like a heart attack. I did. <laughs> I learned the gravity of that accent firsthand, because recently I went to see a new doctor who'd gone to medical school in the former Soviet Union, which says a lot about my insurance situation, mostly. <laughs> and I walk in, and he's like, good morning, Mr. Gondelman. I was like, oh my god, you're the guy for my joke. And... <laughs> He goes to put on a rubber glove to examine me, and it doesn't fit all the way down his hand, which, right off the bat, I don't like what that says about his finger girth. Not into it. And he's pulling and pulling, and it doesn't go, and I'm like, I already dropped my copay. I'm along for this roller coaster ride. <laughs> and he gives it one last hug. It gets two-thirds of the way down. He looks up at the shelf where he got the glove from, down at his hand, directly into my eyes, and just goes, ugh. Someone put little glove in big glove box. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> and that's the story of the worst day of my life. There you go, Josh Gondelman. What a funny... Yeah, I knew he would be funny. I knew he would be wise. That is the aura he gives off in his work whatever his work is like you know whether he's tweeting or putting out records whatever it is I knew he'd be funny and wise but he's very nice I will say he was very sweet and nice and I really enjoyed speaking with him 
and he's very funny. Check out Physical Whisper. It's a fantastic album. And he's going to be on Conan and, and Wyatt's an act show, as, as we mentioned. Hey, go follow Josh. He's very good. He's very good at what he does. Thank you, Josh. If you're hearing this now, thank you for being on the show. It was really a pleasure. Speaking of the show, Creative Control with Vishkana, you can listen to it and subscribe to it and download it and review it and rate it and tell your friends about it because it's available on iTunes, audioboom.com, and at vishkana.com. You can also make a flexible monthly donation to the program to keep it going at patreon.com. We appreciate all of you who have been making donations to the show. Thank you very much. Creative Control of Vishkana is also uh, on Facebook and Twitter. On Twitter, we're at Vishkana. Or rather, that's me. I'm on Twitter at Vishkana. On Twitter, the show is at Vishcreative. And a version of the show airs every Wednesday afternoon at noon Eastern Standard Time on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph and the Kitchener-Waterloo area. And you can listen to it worldwide at CFRU.ca. There's lots more stuff coming up in the next little while. I have tentative plans for things. I mean, a couple of things I can tell you about. There's two live tapings happening this week. On March 18th, I'm doing a Blue Jays, Toronto Blue Jays baseball panel with some experts and fans of the Blue Jays. That's happening at the Great Hall uh, as part of Long Winter, the uh, festival Long Winter. You know, you heard the thing at the top, right? You know all the details. March 18th and March 19th, the Great Hall, Toronto, Creative Control of Vishkana on the 18th, Long Night with Vishkana on the 19th. It's going to be fun. Come out to the live taping. Say hello. I'd like to say hello to you, and, uh, and and we'll have some fun. Okay? So, again, thanks for listening to the show, and we will talk to you soon. Bye for now. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.